digital databases are unparalleled memory machines that have radically transformed how information and stories flow between grandparents and children, students and teachers, politicians and voters, journalists and citizens. What Marshall McLuhan called the perfect memory of computers has, in our time, spawned a garden of competing narratives and conceptions of the past, the present and the future. Digital media serves up an inhumanely large corpus of data that becomes raw material for new subcultures, ideologies and alternative histories. In today's chaotic media environment, not even a global pandemic can restore a shared sense of reality. Hello everyone, welcome to the Hidden Variable podcast. I'm your host, Ankur Nyanmote. Reality is not only stranger than you imagine. paragraph that you just heard at the beginning, which I admit I dramatized with that eerie soundtrack, is from a blog post by Aaron Z. Lewis. It gives a good gist of the conversation with Sanika Devanji that you will be listening in on this episode of the Hidden Variable podcast. Sanika and I have been good friends over the past five years or so since we first met in India in our hometown of Pune. Our friendship has flourished through some common ideas and themes that we resonate with, especially regarding the overlap between science and art. Sanika is a journalist and an essayist who specializes in media research and communication. In this episode, you will hear us discuss the phenomenon of data and its relationship to stories as they relate with the hidden variables of our subjective and objective realities. This discussion was recorded on October 30th, 2020. What is your story with data? Uh, Let's start with that because that's your main area of expertise in these days, right? The relationship between data and storytelling, which is really, really relevant to things that I'm interested in as well. And um, for me, it's more of a an academic interest from outside my field. But for you, as someone who has, for the past few years, worked in this area, uh, I'm really, really curious to hear your story. I know bits of it, but this would be a good way of, you know, getting a more upgraded version of it. Yeah, nice. So, well, first of all, I think I'm not I'm not yet an expert. Um, what I'm trying to do is just figure it out on the go. And uh, yeah, it's interesting that you ask for the story because that's what I'm trying to sell here, that data and numbers alone can't um, provide any context um, because stories are the things that bind these numbers together. And um, actually growing up, numbers um, and statistics were really not not my forte. I would look at numbers and go as far as possible from it. 
and uh, ironically that is also why i chose um, social sciences and journalism as my career option but as i got more deeper into journalism i realized that i can't escape data and numbers because to convince anyone of anything especially today with all the fake news flying around you have to back it up with some some numeric observations be it surveys be it any kind of um actual data from relevant sources you have to back it up with um facts and numbers and data is everywhere around us today the problem is that um when i when i started working with a organization called statista uh, i was doing data research and i noticed that people were um able to find data to process it and um from a very information and it perspective um clean the data but very few people could actually write content that would process and make the data palatable to common audiences you know normal everyday reading and understanding of all this data and i realized that's where i step in because I, I, with my journalism background i've i have um, content and communications experience as well i can actually find the stories um, hidden behind those numbers so i think what my niche is to find the human stories behind all the data and the raw numbers what you said about data and context because what a story does is it provides context and without that context the data is mute it there's no it's like imagining the universe without the human observer it's kind of um pointless to get into any kind of philosophical discourse about what universe or what is objective reality because there's no observer and what you said about data and stories kind of is a parallel uh conceptualization of the same sort of a relationship because we have numbers as a convention that human beings created to make sense of the complexity in the world at least that's one of the purpose for uh for creating the entire field of mathematics or its modern fork which is data analytics right so we it doesn't mean anything unless we have a story around it so that 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 point really really uh drives home some of the existential conundrums that human beings are facing in the 21st century because uh, we are we are not only watching data explode at an exponential rate i mean given covid as an example never before have human beings engaged with data to such a real time extent before in history um and watching those graphs and numbers in the early days of the pandemic was uh, was this this encounter with data becoming the story right the numbers changing all the time and you can see the numbers increasing in your country and then in your province and then in your neighborhood and it was almost like the data was creeping in uh, slowly slowly the numbers were you know becoming part of your story to a deep extent and that that point really is is worth appreciating in an entirely new context so to speak in you know in these times so that that really is uh something i want to hear more about um 
you know, regarding what your views on that are, because this being in being working in this field before the pandemic and when the pandemic hit and now in the mid of this entire crisis, I, because we don't really know at some, you know, at what point we can even expect everything to get normal. So what is your, um, you know, take on that process, uh, you know, as all this time has just recently passed? I mean, we're talking about just a few months. Mm. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, first of all, this Corona, um, all, all of the times in the last few months, we've realized that as long as we have information pouring in, we can accurately map out a lot of the stories um, in the context of the pandemic. As long as we have the case numbers recorded, we have the data coming in, we can actually map out the whole world and how the infections are spreading. Um, even then, I think while working on the corona topic especially, I realized that in a country like India, for example, there is a lot of missing data or misrepresented data. And that creates problems because then false stories get reported. And uh, it's it's very important to first um, get this deeply ingrained in all of our minds that not all data is always the right data. Because it can also be out of context. It can also be uh, misrepresented due to various vested interests. But we, as, as someone who has to go through this data and present it to people, I think it's of utmost responsibility to provide the right information. Um, having said that, I guess, uh, since data is everywhere around us today, it also becomes uh, easily accessible. So even if one source doesn't provide you the right data sets, you can always turn to another set and find the, find the information that you need. This this whole thing about uh, data and misrepresentation and represent that it's 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 again quite fascinating and very thought provoking because uh, what you're essentially saying is and and you can correct me if I'm wrong or add to it is mm-hmm. that we are really responsible for the stories that we write like very very responsible. And and that is becoming more and more obvious when we point the focus towards how a misrepresented story or a misunderstood story can lead to a completely different outcome in history. I mean, we are really thinking of like time travel to- type of concepts over here because, you know, how how in Back to the Future, um, the doc explains to Marty that going back in this time and all would actually lead to an alternate universe unfolding. It is kind of like that, right? I mean, if we don't take some kind of utmost care in writing the stories that we are writing in real time, then we are really responsible for the timelines that you know emerge out of these kind of stories. Because one of the things I recently read um, on a LinkedIn post was that um, good data, uh, sorry, uh, let me rephrase that. Good decisions based on bad data are still bad decisions. 
which implies that good decisions need to be made on good data. Uh, and of course, the converse of that is, you know, you have to make those good decisions based on an element that is something else. It's not just the data, but it is the context that you spin around that data or construct around that data. And this this really, I, for me at least, whenever I think about this in a serious way, it uh, it all boils down to how we understand the entire concept of stories. What are stories? I mean, do we have a clear understanding of what stories are? Because this is a story. You and I are having this conversation and this is going to be converted into an episode and then this is going to be put out there and some people are going to be listening to it and they have their own stories and so on and so forth. And then there's a larger historical story that we are part of where we are living in 2020 and the U.S. elections that are, you know, going to be globally impactful or about to happen and we are in the middle of a pandemic and the whole world is thinking about so many new and old ideas in a new way. So what are stories? I mean, what what is your take on stories as a social science, you know, student or researcher? Yeah, this is this is very fascinating. Um, I think if I, if I think about it, humans have been telling stories through graphical and visual signs, symbols, and texts since we can remember. Like basically. Our shared, entire shared collective memories are based on the stories we've told ourselves and each other. So as an individual, um, I guess what I think is when I'm old enough to look back on my life story, it'll, it'll be molded by the things that I tell myself as my story. Similarly, as a society, um, cultures develop and get extinguished based on the stories they tell themselves as well as others and um, interestingly I think you referred to um, astrological observations or something earlier and uh, if you think about presentations of like data visualization as we would say today was probably the astrological observation catalogs so whatever we saw around us um, someone noted these um, star alignments and planetary observations. And this data ended up telling so many stories about that the Earth is not, I mean, not flat. The, the, the Earth is not the center of the universe. So many ideas evolved out of data and interpreting stories. Um, and, in, and another thing is that stories are basically the most important way that we transmit information because they play a, not only an important sociological role, but actual brain chemistry happens uh, based on stories. It's been proven that um, stories, when we hear facts, two areas of our brain light up. There's the language processing and language comprehension. But when we listen to stories, the neural activity increases fivefold. That certain chemicals like dopamine and cortisol um, are shown to be released uh, if if stories are told to the uh, participants of observations. And uh, these these chemicals are shown to increase our empathy, our focus, and our memory retention capacities. 
So I think this is itself a very grounding to know how stories play a role in our in our lives and in how we interpret the world. So now what you just described uh, we don't even have to get too deep into the neuroscience to appreciate this because think about and any person can relate with this mm. think about what the difference is when we go through an extended phase of social isolation or loneliness we all have experienced that sort of a phase at you know many points in our lives we each individual goes through some phase in their life where they just find that you know all the human inputs have kind of uh, gone to zero for an extended period of time i mean if you do vipassana meditation or something where you deliberately isolate yourself from all inputs for an extended period of time that's an experimental kind of condition uh, but it happens to us by chance at, at some point or the other in our life and when we come out of that phase essentially it it happens with an interaction with another person um because our loneliness as an individual gets replaced by a relationship which is really the core of social organization if we you know have to pin it down in a reductionist fashion so uh falling in love or meeting the person who becomes your best friend or you know engaging in any kind of a social contract that is based on interaction with another person is essentially a fork in the story isn't it so you are a character there's another person who's a stranger who is a character they are living their own individual stories in space and time and at some point at some point in space and time your story and that other person's story intersects and a relationship blooms out of it of course that doesn't always happen lots of our interactions with people are just passing um events you know strangers small conversations and we never see that person again but then there are some interactions that happen that redefine our entire story we become a new person almost uh and and this is very relatable in any kind of long term relationship but it is literally if i have to go one level more meta than this it is literally responsible for each person's individual existence isn't it because if the story of our individual stories of our parents did not intersect at some point at some point in history those social interactions would not have been possible because of which we come into existence in this world and each person's story begins with the story of these two people who are responsible for their biological existence so without getting into too much of even the you know the details of the science behind it it is obvious that the moment we interact with another person something happens that is transcendental across dimensions it's it's a biological phenomenon it is a social phenomenon it is this abstract magical story like thing that happens in the evolutionary time scale of the universe and it's significant because each one of us lives that character of our being our life very very seriously it's a very serious story for us so we take it quite seriously all of us and naturally so so 
So, yeah, I mean, expressing it as a biochemical, neurophysiological kind of an event is exciting because uh, there's almost like some kind of a fractal representation over here. The neuronal crosstalk that happens in the brain is expressing as the crosstalk between people happens with a handshake or a hello or, you know, and, and, you know, a whole new story starts happening. That's that's pretty much getting into the more romantic uh, uh expression of of literature and uh, i don't know social phenomenology yeah exactly it is right because um when you interact with someone you you put your story out there and then there is this chance that the other person interacts back or not but well if we have to pen it down then the most basic elements of any effective story would be um, there are characters, there there is the setting, there has to be a p- plot and a conflict, and then you have a resolution. And they don't always have to be in the same order, but, um, but these elements bind what we call a story. And it can be a living story or something you write as a novel or even data stories, you know, they have to follow the same path. Because if I just present uh, my story without a context or even a conflict, you know, it doesn't make the resounding impact that I would like. And if I do introduce any kind of a little exciting stimulation in terms of my life story or a society, then instantly the attention is drawn to it that what happened uh, i want to know more can you can you give me the resolution that i that you set me up for yeah it's it's uh, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about patterns and paradigm shifts um, throughout our human history, which is our species story, that's so hard to say, so many S's over there, um, uh, is is basically an unfoldment of these events and and milestones that are associated with us noticing different <clears throat> patterns of nature, patterns of nature and reality, or us winding up creating new patterns that were somehow the expressions of how we saw nature like art is um, it's in some it's it's ultimately art that human beings create is is an output that reflects how that artist is relating with their reality um, and we all live in these individual worlds and individual storylines that interconnect on some kind of a network yeah. Where it becomes uncanny when we look at data networks and how 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 social networks basically run data and stories. I mean, it's no coincidence that uh, Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn all have that story feature um, becoming more and more popular as time goes by because there is an there is this odd, or at least it all illustrates that there is this this odd happening going on with human beings as we are interested in each other's stories and we finally have a, a tool that gives us access to infinite stories at any given moment of time. Um, the, the amount of data that is being shared on the internet uh, increasing over, if you plot it across the past few years, it is 
bound to look like an exponential curve. I mean, I have not looked at this data myself, but uh, I'm sure it's out there, or probably you know something about it. And you know, the, 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 for example, the number of hours of videos added on YouTube, or sound bites added on Spotify and SoundCloud, or pictures uploaded on um, Instagram and Facebook, there is a quantitative measure of how much and at what pace data is introduced in the world on a daily basis, minute by minute, hour by hour, year by year. And and uh, it's, it's bringing forth something very interesting about what it means to be a human being in the 21st century. Yes, uh, um, exactly. The, the main thing is that we're creating so much data today um, and you're right, it is exponential. Uh, in fact, in the last just five years or 10 years, um, the amount of data we've created as a world is far more than what we have ever in any point in history. Uh, and that itself is telling that we are now it's October, almost end of October. And soon you'll start getting, you know, these uh, emails from Spotify, from all kinds of apps and brands showing you how you've used the data, what where your most favorite songs, what genre of music did you listen to this year? And basically everything we do in the day is is uh, sort of put down into numbers um, and and quantified by brands today. and And this is important to do as well, because as long as you have the data, you are able to provide insights to your customers or even to yourself about about what you're doing, about your growth, about anything. And and contrary to popular belief, I guess, data storytelling is not simply data visualization or analytic reporting mm-hmm. or just a handful of stats uh, in some PowerPoint presentation somewhere. In. I think it is it is the blending of two worlds. It's hard data and human communication. So it's it's this compelling narrative crafted around and anchored by the compelling data. So like we said earlier at the beginning of the conversation, it is bound by the right data. It is bound by the right communication. And, and, and a lot of times communication is siloed, you know, where it's either the engineering front or it's the humanities or social science or people who do content writing. But this bridge is is what makes data stories data stories. Otherwise, it's just data or it's stories. Right. Uh, like, like a conspiracy theory is a story without data. Yeah. Exactly. Now, one other aspect of all of this is language, which is um, the the medium through which the stories occur because when you don't have a linguistic framework, it's mighty hard to actually engage in a story um, that that probably has um, any kind of relatable meaning associated with it. Um, what, what do you think about language and stories as a social phenomenon from you know the more arts side of things? And then what 
role does language have in the stories that we construct around data? Because that's a very critical point about critical reasoning uh, is, is how language, which is a double-edged sword, is used to construct the stories around data. And, and ultimately, the stories that, that we, we make around data, and you, you rightly pointed it out, it's not just you know, visualization or, or statistical significant p-values noted with it. It's, it's also how it is interpreted, how it is empathized, uh, how it is uh, made relatable to the world. I mean, one of the biggest problems with science in today's times is that it has become so alienating from the common person that they find it suspiciously um, full of, you know, hidden ulterior motives and all kinds of conspiracy theories that are sometimes born because of the mistrust for science and a misinterpretation of what science is. So the language plays a very important role. I mean, mathematics in some sense is a language, um, although far more perfect one to describe the universe. But when we layer it with languages such as, let's say, English or Hindi, Sanskrit, or our local languages, we create the context in that context, in the context of that linguistic framework. Uh, so I wanted to hear what you think about these, these, some of these aspects of language, data, and um, you know, the unfoldment of stories. Interesting. Yeah, the the language part, though, I will I will extend it to include visualization as the language itself. Sure. Honestly, I think um, visual representation is a is is something that our brains process faster than than language, as as you pointed out, as Hindi, Sanskrit, English, or anything else. So if you can if you if you can see a story, you don't need a language. In the same way, if you can see the data. Um, you can you can add a, a linguistic context to it, of course, but um, it kind of transcends the boundaries of language. And um, when you visually process your data, you can also make uh, make it easier to retain information and remember it. So that that's why I think I got fascinated in this field even more because it allows me to kind of creatively explore quantitative information without compromising on the communication part of it. Um, mm. For example, I, I was, I recently came across a book, which very interesting that um, the author, what she tries to do there is um, try and she tries to condense her own everyday experiences, quantify data and visually narrate it by means of sending letters to her friend across. Um, so this this author is in the US and she's sending letters to her friend in the UK by visually um, sort of quantifying the data of everyday activities. Like how many times did I check my phone today? Uh, and then she would draw these beautiful, um, say data visualized stories of um, any shape or any colors, how many steps you took today, how many um, meals did she have in a month, things like that, you know. And I, I think this is very 
fascinating and I'm going to try and do that experiment myself where I could I could observe my own patterns I could observe my own data so to say and tell myself the story that I need to know about myself what is this book uh, do you have the name uh, I do let me just check um it is um by Georgia Lupi and it is called um Dear Data and Stephanie Posavec This is why I also wanted to ask you like you you pointed out earlier that processing data can become become a paradigm change uh, in how you look at different parts of your life um i remember that you told me your own story of um how you how you observed these uh, branches sort of connected that the universe is has a similar pattern of branching out is that oh, right yeah, yeah but it's not a new um way of looking at uh, the world uh, or the universe um many people have actually talked about this um, and and it's actually quite intuitive to think about branching uh, patterns as some kind of a motif in the way reality is structured or organized and even if you if you think about stories they're essentially branches of some phenomenology right like uh, the, i mean you you know that i'm a big fan of pink floyd and there's this line from their uh, metal album um, uh, the song echoes there's this line that strangers passing in the street by chance to separate glances meet and i am you and what i see is me uh this this particular part of the song uh is says so much about how stories are branch points so we meet strangers before any person becomes a significant person in our life that person is a stranger i think that's a very clear cut kind of a demarcation right i mean you don't know a person and suddenly you're introduced to a person and then you know this person's name and you start taking in and sharing a lot of data with each other and as the relationship matures you create this whole new fork in your story and that person does the same thing they create a fork in their story and it becomes now our story and and going back to that um description of the biological framework of looking at stories uh, all of us are born into this world thrown into this being because of the intersection between the stories of our parents uh, our father and our mother had to uh, you know have these things happen in their story individual story to put them in contact with each other and that leads to a fork a branch point that becomes us as a, as a result of that interaction so if you envision this um, you know all across the planet as you know babies are being born into the world um you can see that it's everywhere is just a branch point which is now generating a whole new world and a whole new story in itself and then that baby will grow up you know in 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 another 20 25 years and again you'll see more branch points coming from it 
And this uh, almost gene-based, very reductionist, Darwinian kind of way of looking at um, human evolution is is an algorithmic kind of a process at the end of it. And it's it's got this branching motif in it. Whether the universe is a branch pattern or not is... Uh, I don't know what the physicists would you know, say about this, but if you look at the picture of the largest structure in the universe, the, the largest structure made of matter that you can envision, the picture is a very branched web kind of structure, the super cluster of all the galaxies that they show as the biggest picture of the universe is essentially a, this, it's, it's this massive branched structure on which our galaxy is one small pixel, which means that we are essentially some, our planet is essentially equivalent to some kind of a subatomic quark at that scale. And uh, uh, that's like the cosmic view of this branching motif. But if you look at even branching patterns that emerge embryonically as human beings assemble, so to speak, into people and, you know, after nine months of gestation, enter into this world or are thrown into being like Heidegger says. Um, it's a it's a result of cellular interactions that create new branch points, conceptually speaking at least, that become differentiated organs which start communicating with each other through this very ancient mechanism that evolved over you know, 3.5 billion years in this 14 billion year old universe is, is also this process of branch points. I mean, if, if it has to be correlated in some kind of a mathematical equation, it probably is very similar to a, a, a branching kind of a math expression or a fractal equation or something like that. So this this pattern of branching is um, is quite um, quite omnipresent. I mean, the tree of life uh, is is a branching motif, and uh, um, the neuronal network in our brains is a branching motif. And stories have branch points. And if we map out the circuitries of the um, the the internet information highway or power lines, we would see branch points. And uh, so there's some kind of an inherent universal logic in the branching motif. Um, and, and quite a lot of people have actually discussed that. And I just found myself very intimately in touch with it when I was doing my own research. Uh, so that's why it probably became like a, a, a pilot wave in my thinking somehow. Uh, the way you explained it right now, especially Again, a little obsessively, but still, I, it again made me think of data because if you think about it, evolution wouldn't be possible if there wasn't microdata being fed into these mechanisms of what you said. Like every new information, every new bit of information is creating a trajectory for change and growth or eliminating things that we don't need or taking decisions based on what is being fed into this mechanism, whatever it is, based on whether it is um, we, the embryonic growth or our everyday business decisions, or you can, you can have any, you can link any 
factor in this, but still, this this really made me think about how we can we can find branching as a sort of metaphor to growth and change. Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, it's 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 certainly a very useful um, metaphor for sure. Um, I wanted to go back to what you said um, about um, visual storytelling um, and its effectiveness, which, which again, is, I think, very true. Um, uh, visual information is very accessible, like a picture paints a thousand words. Um, so I was thinking human beings have been creating stories. If you have to list out the various formats in which human beings have been creating stories. We could say we have been creating stories visually in the form of paintings, and maybe we can go as far back as those um, ancient caves with handprints on them in, mm. um, in France, um, uh, and the name is escaping me right now. Um, but um, so there's that one format, painting, and you can you know go all the way to Renaissance, and you can talk about world, you know, different kinds of paintings throughout the world and then come to modern art and you know data and art blending into this new form of beautiful data sort of a field um, uh, so there's that one that's there's there's that branch so to speak then there is the branch that is encoded linguistically which is um, you know you can think of uh, fiction uh, literature, poetry, and poetry is an interesting one because uh, it kind of bends the nature of uh, traditionally used language into something that is something that is really magical. I mean, William Blake describing the scale of the universe in just four lines is is uh, um, as elegant as E equals MC square. So, um, so there's that linguistic uh, branch, and then you have the the logic mathematics based branch, which also has a visual component in the form of graph theory and geometry uh, and, you know, all the ideas from Plato and things of that nature. So that's another third graph. And then you have, of course, this acoustic, acoustic medium of mm. storytelling, which is music and um, uh, which is a blend. I think sometimes I, I find music, maybe it's my own bias, but I find music as a blend of all the arts because um, it has the elements of dance in the sense that it in it requires this kind of a physical uh, orchestration, coordination that has to match with space and time and movement. So it has that element. Um, it is like a painting because uh, listening to a song can evoke all kinds of visual uh, stimuli and pictures and visions can come to mind just by listening to some music and song. So there's that visual element. Uh, it has the linguistic element because of the lyrics and poetry and spoken word that can be injected into the musical format. Um, and uh, and it has a mathematical structure inherently encoded in it. It's, it's, it's ultimately mathematical and based on physics of sound and frequencies and um, uh, it also matches with biological hardware in a way that it evokes all these complex feelings, emotions, um, and activates parts of the brain that are, you know, incredibly incomprehensible to um, make sense of. So there's all this mysterious aspect to it. Um, they all seem to be, 
branches of how the human animal, through its evolutionary story, uh, has been constructing uh, its stories through these branches. Uh, does that make sense? I mean, I, I don't know if I rambled off on too many things at the same time, but um, uh, what do you think of that? Honestly, when you were uh, talking about the music uh, part of it, I I kind of beg to differ that okay. for, me, for me, the bias lies in the culinary arts. For example, um, mm. just the act of cooking something is what uh, I think is the greatest art, if I can say. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It has the sound element, it has the visual element, it has the taste uh, stimulation, mm. and, and it also has... Uh, chemistry which unfolds in a way oh fantastic uh you uh, missed what you were saying because i started i guess it's lunchtime but but <laughs> that, that happens to me all the time anyway oh no that how could i forget gastronomy uh that is probably more fundamental than any of these things because if we can't feed ourselves we can't make any of these art forms forget about music dance anything if we can't feed ourselves there is really no way we can do anything that we do as human beings which is a very you know interesting evolutionary um um point to consider because uh, one thing that sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom in terms of how we nourish ourselves is through the art of, you know, the, the culinary art, right, um, which is connected to our story with fire. We are the, the creature that, that tamed this, this force of nature, um, and it allowed us um, to... Uh, cook our food and then our understanding of herbs and tastes um, as it became more complex as we started experimenting with it um, has evolved into this very sophisticated art form that uh, you know the master chef series puts mm -hmm. in some kind of an intense competitive way but we all appreciate a good meal and there's this this very tactile um, sensory engagement with reality through uh, the art of cooking. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that. It completely skipped my mind, even though I was sipping on this delicious uh, uh, smoothie that uh, you know is there on my desk. <laughs> I guess coming, you refer to something about um, visual representation of data, mm -hmm. or, or or using the language um, element to represent data is that is that what you asked yeah 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 so it, to to answer that i would say for me um when i got into got interested into the in this field the first thing i had to understand was what is data because i come from a purely social sciences background and i have no clue about the the jargons and the terminologies and their accepted usage so when i started looking at what data is I came across this um, well-known sort of um, visual model that is popular in data analysis trainings. Uh, this pyramid, you can visualize it and, and see. It's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy, the pyramid. Right. Um, except here, it's uh, showing how data is on the bottom because it shows the unprocessed bit of observations information comes next then there is knowledge and then finally there is wisdom so when i think of how data is either represented or just what it is 
I like to give the give the example of thinking of data like the pixels in a photograph mm. because each pixel is like a packet of information and and the more we zoom in on one data point the more we can see its complexity while the more we zoom out the more we see the context so so data by itself can't be an objective representation of the reality but it has to be shaped and molded and framed by the person viewing the data so um just like the conspiracy theories that you addressed earlier um you can make you can visualize and tell a story made out of completely wrong information but you can also um really go deep into a context and try and emphasize on the various um information that lies hidden in it yeah definitely uh, i i see what you're saying about the visual component as well uh, you're right because it's our eyes that process information predominantly uh in terms of everything in nature like our the 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 visual cues really really give a one of the most uh, high resolution context about reality for us so when we see a graph for example a pie chart or uh, a bar chart or a venn diagram um which which allows us to interface with the data that is behind it uh, it, it, it's definitely i agree it's one of the strongest um um entry points for us to start making the story around that data uh, it's like that proverbial um, elephant and those blind people whole you know touching different parts of the elephant's body and imagining a different creature um that sort of a thing and and opening up the eyes essentially gives you the the true picture of uh, uh the context in which those micro perceptions are built up and stories are built up um um uh, am i am i reading that interpretation right what you were trying to say about the visual um, aspect of data being exactly yeah 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 no i get it i i totally get it because the language part comes uh, after it as you as you communicate it in um, you know it's almost like adding a new layer on the painting like there's a there's a basic um, framework created by a visual representation of the data and then the language plays the role of uh, cementing it in some ways uh, to make it into a communicable piece or story so to speak um yeah so that's that's pretty interesting uh, I, i mean i i loved all of that the the visual metaphor of the pyramid um, and information hierarchies from data to wisdom um then the importance of context and uh, perspective based on zooming in and zooming out uh, and the pixel metaphor um, yeah that's, that 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 was definitely uh, interesting that that does make a very strong it it actually presents the flow of data um, in a very um, coherent model yeah the the other um thought that that came my came to my mind was you know sometimes you have to see you have to see the data being uh, visually to process um 
for example, when you when we talk about climate change and this two degree or 0.5 degree temperature change and how it'll affect us, most people's understanding or or ability to kind of process abstract information like this is a little cha- challenging. Mm-hmm. And um, one uh, uh, one platform by National Geographic, I think uh, they have a exclusive climate change dedicated uh, data stories uh, web page. And over there, I came across this um, visualization of what will happen once uh, the temperature crosses the stated mark of the two degree change. And they have short, sort of used the, the web page itself as their as um, as a place where they would show what happens. So as you scroll down the page, um, you see this image of uh, iceberg melting. And as you scroll more and more, um, cities start going underwater. Then you see how different parts of the earth will uh, submerge. You you see how forests are being overtaken by these forces of what will happen when climate changes. And and it was amazing t- for me to see how using complex coding and uh, the the technologies available to us today, you can actually you can actually go one step closer to the audience and let let people play around with the data that you have and and this is where the power of explorating data and data stories comes in because if you have an you have an interesting data set and say competent coders uh, who can make interactive websites like these it can it, it allows people to sort of click on various elements that you want to have them explore and understand and and they can do it at their own pace and interest so the exploratory nature of data and data stories is something that we're still we're still trying to find and it's an ongoing process at the moment in 2020 yeah and it's exciting uh, because what you're essentially saying or at least what i was hearing a lot while you're describing that is you're talking about an intersection between science and art because there is there is this element of visual storytelling or even let's say linguistic or whatever the art of storytelling that is associated with the data component you need good rigorously um, um, harvested data you definitely need to have very strong statistical tools and thorough kind of mathematical treatments to make sure that your data is clean and it's accurate and it's representative and um, it can be molded and modified if new data and evidence comes in so all those requirements of critical reasoning have to be definitely be there in the methods of collecting and organizing data but in terms of communicating it effectively to the widest possible audience so that the message is incontrovertibly delivered to the you know to the audience is 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 an art and uh, in the 21st century what is becoming more clear is that an interdisciplinary dialogue between the humanities the social sciences arts and the hard sciences should happen because that's what is anyway 
happening when we're looking at the interdisciplinary nature of data science and data communication around stories. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's exciting and urgent and there needs to be more emphasis on that interdisciplinary crosstalk. So true. I mean, you, you, I couldn't have explained it better. Yeah, this is exactly what I was trying to, this, this was the thought I was trying to grapple with, the intersection of art and science or the interdisciplinary nature of knowledge itself. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, it, is, it itself is a story of the, the archetype of the scientist and the archetype of the artist meeting together and having a new branch point. <laughs> yes. The last time we spoke, I think we referred to this, that right. knowledge can, you know, expand. Uh, we, we know so much, but just if people talk across the table to others who are doing something completely out of their bubble um, so much information knowledge can be can be exchanged and insights can be drawn from each other no absolutely um yeah um and and it is the need of the times uh i don't think we have we can afford i don't think we can afford to go on into the 21st century being completely disconnected as different disciplines of human thought. Uh, what is needed more so than ever is more connectivity between wider disciplines. They need to, um, uh, we all need to um, evolve our communication to the point where we can talk and understand uh, with each other so that that some of the crucial problems in the world, which need solutions, uh, they actually have those solutions hidden in this crosstalk and the potential that such a collaboration can come up with. It's not an easy thing to, um, to present though, because uh, even though there are many efforts towards integrating science and art, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a paradigm that has uh, been present in our institutionalized academic world, at least for a while now. I mean, in the past, philosophy was what what united both these endeavors. But uh, um, I think it's time for a second renaissance, so to speak, for science and art to, again, kind of uh, uh, you know, fall in love with each other. For sure. This, this particularly always amuses me because when I, while I was still in India, um, my first master's degree is a MSc, like a master's in science in communication studies. And then I came to Europe and pursued another master's, which was a MA, which is a master's of arts in media, journalism and globalization. And then I noticed that in Europe, um, somehow humanities, social sciences are very alienated from the pure sciences, um, call it some sort of a snobbish behavior or something that must have changed um, in perception of how the arts and pure sciences are viewed. But I don't, I don't take that argument anymore since today art can be anything. It re in fact, most of my friends who are artists um, are using technical interfaces to, to pursue their art. Very rarely do you 
exclude uh, technology or science from art anymore and and where do we draw the line of how how someone becomes a scientist or an artist right they're really not um, that divorced from each other um, yeah in fact what you just said about the the big chasm between the science and art community it's like trying to imagine um, you know the party of the town in which you invite both you know people from both the departments and see what happens i mean that would be an interesting experiment i think that should be carried out in every university where um, it's a social event where you just blend these artists and scientists together but when we try to imagine it you can easily see that um, uh, beyond a particular threshold uh, the interactions between scientists and artists either could be extremely fruitful because they have somehow managed to step out of their own, um, uh, I guess, uh, matrix of realities and then being able to connect with the other discipline. Or the other extreme of the possibility is that uh, they will just you know, throw in a cold shoulder at each other because they can't even begin to imagine uh, interacting with someone from the opposite discipline. Uh, so it, it almost seems like there need to be more uh, mechanisms to catalyze the, the chemistry between artists and scientists. At least that needs to be the first step to kind of explore the potential of what such collaborations might actually uh, lead to in the future. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely, you're right. I mean, Europe is... is uh, is an example, but that's true even in North America. That has been true in India, and 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 in that mainstream view, somewhere there are small islands where artists and scientists find uh, befriending each other and realizing that so much more can be accomplished uh, through the dynamic equilibrium that can be struck between these two disciplines. Yeah, I think you are a perfect example of this that you you're trying to get this equilibrium between your own identity as a scientist and an artist yeah I'm, it has been i have to be honest it has been quite um insane uh, to kind of come to terms with the duality within your own psyche because uh because pragmatism dictates that you choose a simple solution that stabilizes your personality and career and whatever you have to do in this world. So um, once you commit to a discipline, that's, I mean, pragmatism would say that, you know, you do stick with that and, you know, get good at it. Mm. But <laughs> I have, I, I, I really wasn't able to separate both these impulses in my head. And I never got good at either one of them in any kind of an extraordinary way at all. So uh, I find myself in a very unique position where I'm a beginner in both fields, uh, but um, not both fields as individuals, but as some kind of a chimera. So uh, the initial process was very shocking. It was very uh, uncomfortable, destabilizing, Lots of uh, weird, uh, you know, personality-related aspects emerging as you experience this this whole turbulence going on in your head. But as it started settling down, what I have been extremely thankful for is that 
I have found people in both disciplines, in science and art, who are willing to have this conversation. And this present conversation that we are having right now, I mean, this is the first time we're recording it, but we've had this before too, is an indication that there is a genuine interest for this sort of a, a cross-communication, this sort of collaboration. It's not that this is just some kind of a, uh, a it is not just empty philosophizing that uh, does not bear any kind of pragmatic uh, real-world application. I think the argument that you and I both would probably try to uh, fine-tune is that this kind of a collaboration is essential even more so in a world that is getting more and more inundated by data, a world that is getting more and more interconnected as our communication technologies are becoming more sophisticated, a world that is becoming socially and politically more complex than it has ever been before, uh, where individual psychology, mental health, social ethics, everything is becoming extremely relevant to consider environment is a big big thing that if we don't understand the the if we don't understand the relevance of the environmental crisis to our own lives then all this progress and all this wealth and all this technological prowess and everything that we are so proud of even though we are the only creatures in this huge universe who has that kind of a resume all of that would be moot and redundant if uh, if we go on a self-destruct branch of the story. So, um, yeah, I, 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 it has it has from from a psychological uh, chaos. It has now started becoming uh, some kind of an um, evangelical uh, mission to kind of. Uh, catalyze this interdisciplinary dialogue at least. So I find that this kind of a conversation is actually uh, uh, a means towards that end. For sure. In fact, right now I thought about what what data storytelling to me is, is that it's the art of scientific thinking in a way that you are, I'm, I'm trying to get observable data mm -hmm. but then it's the art of being able to tell that and explain it or find interconnected ideas through it so right. it's this leap of uh, imagination and creativity while grounding your ideas in something solid something observable something replicable yeah I agree it's like um uh, controlled, controlled um, insanity, which is kind of what a musician or a dancer or a painter or any kind of artist engages in, right? Like when they're playing music, they're not thinking about the science of sound or the mathematics of uh, the octave and things of that nature. A musician who is um, up there on the stage, lost in that moment, playing whatever they're playing, is essentially uh, walking that line between spontaneity and control, but um, not falling completely on either ways. And it's almost like that's what we need to do to um, um, bring more uh, coherence to this dimension that exists at the edge of our epistemology, um, you know, which 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 is at the boundary of our knowledge. Uh, because again, going back to that that pyramid that you were talking about. The data and information is the base, but on that base we build knowledge. And by 
by practicing that knowledge in many ways and experimenting with it over time, we cultivate something that is uh, that can be labeled as genuine wisdom. And it appears that uh, collectively the human species uh, needs to take cognizance of these kind of things because uh, uh, if we keep continuing uh, mindlessly advancing our technologies without advancing our thinking, then we are like some kind of a hormonally jacked up teenager with a gun. Uh, and um, that could be quite self-destructive. And this is something that really started becoming more and more obvious once uh, these kind of conversations started happening more uh, openly compared to how at least I experienced them a few years ago. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely is uh, needed, is at least my view. stranger than you imagine.